The Psalms are all songs in Hebrew. When they're translated to English, they still tend to uh, lend themselves to be put in musical form pretty easily. But Chris, one cool thing about that songs is it's just so easy to remember the words of a song, right? As opposed to maybe just a bunch of block on a page. So the word psalms means the songs. This was the hymn book of the tabernacle and the temple. And so although we lose that in our English translation a little bit, there are all kinds of different arrangements of Psalm 23. You've probably heard them. But let me read it to you. English translation, of course. I'm reading New American Standard Bible. The little statement above the first verse is just as much inspired as the rest of the psalm. And so we start there. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you, notice he's changing from the third person, he, 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 to you, talking directly to, not about God. Uh, for you are with me, 24-7. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So that's not talking about heaven, Mike, because there aren't any enemies in heaven surrounding you. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Bottom line, surely goodness and hesed, be a new Hebrew word for us today, hesed, loyal love, will follow me, pursue me, not bring up the rear, but pursue me all the days of my life on earth, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, if I did ask you uh, just point blank without the introduction, what's your favorite chapter in the Old Testament? I think most of us would probably say Psalm 23. And even if it's not your number one favorite, uh, you probably are more familiar with Psalm 23 than most of the rest of the Psalms. Uh, But I want you to see today that this passage, which we'll look at pretty closely, has three pivotal promises that can and should give us as believers peace in a perplexing world. But let me uh, emphasize that peace is not denying our pain or our problems. It's not refusing to go to the doctor for a medical problem or refusing to go on a budget for a financial problem. Peace is not denying our pain and our problems. It's seeing them through the prison, prism of God's perspective and God's purposes. It's living in the eye of the hurricane when we're in a crisis. You know, the eye of the hurricane is the one place there's no wind. Uh, with something called hoopa mene. I haven't said that in a while. Now, I found out that the winning word in this last week's National Spelling Bee, the final word that got the guy over the top. You know what it was, Scott? You hear this? Koinonia. Koinonia. Remember the Demersons last fall? We talked about koinonia. Had a coin. Talked about the knee. Koinonia. What is that? Coin. Oh, koinonia. That's the word for Christian fellowship. And uh, somebody has sent me that link. And I said, oh, great. You know, I didn't see what the word was. The winning word, uh, to see the winning word hit, hit this link, I thought, man, there's no way I can spell it. I'm the world's worst speller. And it's koinonia. I knew how to spell it. It's the winning word. So that's one Greek word you should know. Koinonia is 
a sharing, a having an overlap that transcends color, country, culture. Uh, one reason every Christian who can do it, I think, should go on one short-term foreign mission trip emphasizing the gospel. It's great to build stuff, and, and uh, I'm all for that, and let's do that. Let's build houses and water supplies and all that kind of stuff. But you need to go someplace where you're interacting with somebody of a different color, country, language about the main thing, which is the gospel. And it's amazing. You get in the trenches with people like that, whether it's in Mafrak, Jordan, or Chichihar, China. Andrew can tell you about that. Or Puebla, Mexico. Or La Resurrection, where the road stops. And we've got this connection. We've got this koinonia that transcends all the cultural differences. Well, Psalm 23 is telling us because of God's provisions, we ought to have hupamane. Hupamane is another word you ought to learn. Uh, it means a holy hanging in there. And I always say when you feel, hey, Wendy, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, okay, as a Christian who's trusted Christ for eternal life and you're dealing with some finite problem, when you're at the end of your rope, that's okay. Be honest with it, you know. Tie a knot. Hold on in faith. And uh, start doubting your doubts. Pastor, I got doubts. I always say, doubt the doubts. I mean, if you can doubt God, doubt your doubts, right? And one way you do that is you prepare a battleship of the soul before the storm hits, because it's awfully hard to build a battleship during the middle of a hurricane. But they're awful nice to have in the middle of a hurricane. So hupamene, perseverance, is a holy hanging in there. Uh, and that is fueled by knowing and resting in the God who makes these kind of promises to us. First promise is found in the first four verses. God will provide for Julie Demerson like a faithful shepherd provides for his sheep. Promise number two, verse five. Uh, the Lord will provide uh, for uh, Janet Deeg like a gracious banquet host. In the ancient Near East, a banquet host would lay his life down to protect you from robbers and bad guys who might break in. Uh, like a gracious banquet host provides for his guest. And then the bottom line is the Lord will provide for, I'm going to go ahead and do it, make an executive decision for Brad McCoy, consistent with his character, my spiritual best and his highest glory, both in this life and in the life to come. So we're not saying name it and claim it. We're not saying, uh, you know, if you trust God, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Um, why does God let uh, the same kind of horrible things happen to some believers in his purposes and providential plan that he does for unbelievers. I'm not sure exactly why in every case, but in parts of the world can see the difference. Uh, tonight, for the guys who come to Men's Fellowship, Tim Tebow is going to talk about a, a young lady who died of cancer. Joel Olstein will not tell you about little girl, young women who die of cancer because it doesn't fit his system. If you got enough faith, and you know why she died of cancer, according to him? She didn't have enough faith. Let's blame the victim of cancer. That, that's really biblical, isn't it? Uh, remember when the disciples, John 9, you know, the, as the guy's suffering, guy's born blind, he's begging, he's got nothing. And rather than trying to help the guy out a little bit, the disciples asked Jesus a theological question. Hey, Lord, who sinned here, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? They're going to write the notes down. What did he say? It's more complicated than that. It's not, it's not based on his parents saying or him saying. It's for the glory of God kind of thing. So we're going to look at one reason this passage is so beloved is it's short, it's concise, 
But it teaches these transcendent truths that really are kind of the whole basis of the spiritual life in these uh, three promises. So let us as sheep, guests, and people built to live forever uh, feed on this portion of Scripture. And I hope it's not about the teacher, but the, the text that can kind of change our perspective today. Uh, let's pray for teachability and is as is our custom and our pleasure, let's pray for our uh, military, our um, peace officers, and our firefighters, okay? And uh, uh, Danny, if you would, pray for us in that direction, okay? Amen. Boy, I tell you what, Danny is such an amazing trophy of God's grace. I am so thankful you are in my life, Danny. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being a TBF. Love that guy. Uh, we're going to look at three pivotal promises, but first, three random uh, abstract thought warmer-uppers. Okay. You heard of the serenity prayer? Here's another version. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change without a remote control. And for years, you know, I'm so old, Henry. I, I grew up and you had a television set with a channel selector on the set. And if you wanted to go from golf to football, you had to get up and turn this thing, okay? You didn't sit with your chips and hit a button, okay? And so when they came up with the uh, remote control, I thought it was like the greatest invention since the wheel. I mean, just amazing. But they were kind of expensive when they first came out. Ken, you may remember this. And so I said for a long time, and I'm a, a young pastor in Shreveport. We're making $1,000 a month, you know, not a lot of, not, not a lot of money back then, uh, and, not a lot of money now either, but um, uh, I remember thinking, uh, I can't afford that. And frankly, when I get so lazy, I'm not willing to make my wife get up and change the channel. That's that's when I was going to get a remote control. So. So that's what I thought about when I saw that cartoon. Okay, you gotta you got to put this in the context for the kids. Yes, the disciples follow Jesus, but not on Twitter. Because that's what they think of. And finally, and this is kind of looks like your, our men's fellowship are much better than this, but uh, some churches try to start a men's ministry. It's easy to start a women's ministry. The, the, the question is, do we go for three hours each time or four hours? But for men, it's like, can we get them to come for 10 minutes or 12 minutes? Because they don't want to come, they don't want to stay. You know? um, the challenge of starting a men's ministry. So this is kind of the organizational meeting, uh, and you can tell they're really, really psyched up about it, right? So far, the only thing we have in common is an aversion to singing, socializing, and sharing. So maybe we can build a ministry out of that. Okay, Lord willing, weather permitting, uh, we will look at Psalm 23 here in a moment. And then next week, we're going to look at uh, Jerusalem. And I'm going to make the point, I don't care if you're a liberal or conservative, or you love uh, Trump or loathe President Trump, or if you like uh, what he decided to do about Jerusalem or not, we'll talk about some biblical history and some, frankly, some uh, American legislative history you may not know about. And I'm going to try to convince you, you don't have to be a crazy Christian to realize that recognizing Jerusalem as a capital of modern Israel uh, is the right thing to do. And I think it should be a bipartisan issue. And in fact, I'll show you based on the way people voted, like unanimous vote from the Senate a couple of years ago, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. They all voted for it when they didn't think he was going to do it. So... It's not going to be political. It's going to be biblical and historical. So people have asked me about that, so I want to do a single standalone message on that. 
And then I'm really excited about uh, sur- surveying the life of Christ starting in uh, the third Sunday of this month, June the 17th, right? Life of Christ, A through Z. But today let's look at Psalm 23. Psalm 23, Trey, has three pivotal promises, so it's easy to remember that, that can and should give us peace as we wait for possibly Baker's next surgery, or I'm praying that it's going to heal itself, God's going to touch it, and we're not going to need it, but we don't know. Right? So we're going to look at three pivotal promises that can and should give Julie and Trey and Brad and Nancy and Scott uh, and uh, Sawyer peace in a perplexing world. And as I said, we've got three promises here. The first one is addressed to us as sheep, which is picturing the Lord as a shepherd. And it emphasizes that the Lord will, pro- will provide for believers. So Murray, that includes you. Like a faithful shepherd provides for his sheep. Now, as I said, above the first verse there, Trey, it says a psalm of David. That's just as much inspired as the rest of the psalm. And in fact, roughly half, roughly half of the 150 psalms in your Old Testament refer to their Davidic human authorship. But we always have, Caroline, we have dual, D-U-A-L, authorship of scripture, because we've got human authors like Paul, Peter, David, we have the divine author, God, the Holy Spirit. And the reason this book is so important, more important than People Magazine or Sports Illustrated, including this swimsuit issue, is because God, the Holy Spirit, superintended the human authors of Scripture, in this case, David, as he wrote Psalm 23 in Hebrew in about 1000 B.C. God superintended the human authors such that David composed and recorded without any error the exact message God wanted is timeless scripture for Sue Smith Raska as much as for Asaph, who served in his court. In the words of the original, uh, God has preserved that text. We don't have the original manuscript of Psalm 23, but we've got amazingly uh, accurate copies. So we've got essentially the Hebrew text that uh, he wrote, and we don't read Hebrew, most of us, so we've got a good English translation, and you may have a, we may have a bunch of different translations today. But if you're not using the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible, where they change the Bible to line up with the theology, just about all the rest of them you can work with. Okay, So there aren't that many bad ones out there. But anyway, the first statement, talking about childhood misconception. I remember as a young kid hearing about the guerrilla warfare in Vietnam, and I thought, man, that's terrible. They're training guerrillas to fight each other. You know, guerrilla warfare. Um, and I can remember as a little kid hearing... The first statement from this psalm, this amazing psalm, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I'm sitting there in Sunday school thinking, Why wouldn't we want him, James? The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. You don't want him? Why not? Everybody should want him to be your shepherd, you know? It doesn't mean that. We shall not be in want of anything we need to be what God wants us to be in our character. That's what that means, of course. But here's what's really important. They never told me this, but I wish they had. I think I would have been very interested in it, uh, the word for Lord there is a particular word that uh, is literally the form uh, of the uh, verb I am. That's why he is the great I am. Uh, who am I? Moses says, who am I going to tell Pharaoh sent me to do this thing? Tell him I am that I am, you know, the eternally existing one. But the word Lord, Yahweh, is the Hebrew uh, is what theologians call the covenantal, the personal name for God, it's the unique name for God, it's the God who enters into salvation covenants with those who trust him. And so this is the God of my salvation. So Carol, I would say, 
as you read your Old Testament, when you see the word God, you're looking at Elohim, which in context typically refers to the Lord of of Scripture, the real God. But that is a more generic term. And even the word Lord with lowercase o-r-d, Adonai, can be used for human lords. I mean, David, uh, David was the lord over the United Tribes of Israel as the king. Abraham was the lord over his servants. And Adonai is using for, that for God as the lord over his creation. But the word capital O, capital uh, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the personal, it's the covenantal, it's the salvation name for God. And you really ought to translate it, not the Lord is my shepherd, but the God who has given me eternal salvation is my shepherd. Uh, he's not really the shepherd of unbelievers in this sense, in this relational sense. This applies to believers in a unique way. So this is a unique salvation name for God. And David is a believer. David's a believer? David? What do you know about the life of David? As I often say, we wouldn't let him teach, uh, we probably wouldn't let him teach Super Summer. Okay? He was morally flawed. But it's amazing. God uses all kinds of crazy raw material. Have you looked at, I know we, I know Americans don't read genealogies in scripture, but they should. Have you seen the gene, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew? There's all kinds of, I guess the term my, my boys use is sketchy. There are several sketchy characters in that genealogy that, you know, if I was listing my genealogy, I might be tempted to skip those people or jump over a generation or something like that. But David's saying, the God of my salvation, God I've trusted for eternal salvation, will provide my needs both now and for all eternity. Not necessarily all my wants, but all my needs. And watch this, Dustin. He gets to define what your needs are. So trusting him to meet your needs isn't giving him a to-do list. It's submitting to whatever happens and whatever you've got to bring to the table, knowing, as James just let us in, Christ is enough. Now, David grew up as a shepherd boy, which, you know, is is kind of like, it's kind of, uh, what should we say, uh, we look we look at it from a distance. If you, you know, I mean, the powers run a, a ranch and, and, you know, you're around animals all day long. And animals, you I mean, they stink. They'll bite you. They'll kick you. They go to the bathroom all the time and stuff. They make a mess. You know, we kind of uh, picture this in very uh, idyllic ways. That he's a shepherd and the sheep just can't wait to see him. And they're all smiling at him and, and stuff like that. But it's, it's not an easy job. And in fact, it's kind of was the uh, equivalent to being a garbage man in our culture. It doesn't have a lot of status, even though we tend to idealize it. But he's saying, uh, you know, as somebody who's taking care of sheep, I can look back on my life and say, God is really taking care of me. Now, David's living in the Old Testament. He's living in about 1000 B.C., round numbers. We're living in roughly 2000 A.D., round numbers. So he's living out here. Now, we would say, well, we know that God becomes our Lord, our Adonai, uh, I mean, our uh, Yahweh, I should say, the God of our salvation, when by his grace we trust in the provision of Jesus Christ for us, and he regenerates us. But how in the world did people in the Old Testament get saved? Same way. <laughs> Only they're saved by grace through faith in the promised. They're living out here. David, so uh, David is Dennis right in here somewhere. If we're going to say it's 2,000. Let's go back from there, about halfway, right in the middle. That's that's off. Uh, that's not the scale. 
But David's here, and Ken's over here. You know, we're twice as far away from the cross as he was. But yeah, everybody saved by grace, the initiative of God, through faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, they had an increasingly specific picture of the Messiah being painted for them. And for us, we have the privilege of living between the first and second advent. But David's a believer, saved by grace through faith like we are. This is our invitation to you. You can be saved by grace through faith. You've never trusted Jesus Christ. The Bible says all of us have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is through Jesus Christ our Lord. But to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. You need righteousness to go to heaven, but you can't crank it out. And uh, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. So as a shepherd, he's writing about shepherds. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, uh, you have passages that talk about the Messiah that's promised to come as a shepherd. Isaiah 40 uses that title predicting, anticipating Jesus. Um, the Lord Jesus uses the title for himself, I am the good shepherd, right? He's probably thinking of Psalm 23 when he says that. Hebrews 13, 20 describes Jesus as our great shepherd. And 1 Peter 5, 4 says he is our chief shepherd. And because the Lord, the God of our salvation, is our shepherd spiritually, he'll give us everything we need I actually, I believe this, man. I totally believe this. And, you know, I, I kiddingly say when I first went into ministry, uh, 29 and a half years here, six and a half years in Shreveport, that's like 37 years. Um, uh, Sydney, when I first went into ministry, and when I say Sydney, you don't know if I'm talking to you or to you. Do I? I'm talking to you this time, okay? The good-looking Sydney. Sydney, when I first went into the ministry, I had no desire to become rich or famous. And 37 years later, I'm right on track, you know? But he has given me everything I needed, I think, to be everything he wants Brad McCoy to be. I can't be Billy Graham, but I can be me. Uh, and we can trust him to do that instead of punning to Operation Doubt, Pout, and Drop Out, like the children of Israel did. Now, I did a lot of hopping around the Psalms this week, thinking about Psalm 23. Look at Psalm 106, which is this little gem. And it's, I say little, it's actually pretty long, especially compared to Psalm 23. But look at what, uh, long after the Exodus, but still in the Old Testament era, look what the psalmist here, Psalm 106, says in verses 6 through 10. You know what, you have to laugh, because you don't want to cry, but uh, uh, the psalmist says, hey, we've sinned like our forefathers, thinking about to the children of Israel in Egyptian bondage. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt, before Moses came and took them out of there, did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant loving kindness. But they rebelled, not after they got across the Red Sea, but when as soon as they get to the Red Sea and they see the Egyptian army, they're saying, why did you get us out of here? Why did you do this to us, Moses? We were, we were getting like one square meal a day, almost 500 calories every day. It was so wonderful living in Egypt as a slave. Why did you take us out here to get killed? They're whining, complaining, doubting, pouting, dropping out before God opens up the Red Sea. Uh, and you might say, well, okay, you can almost understand that. But they are even worse after he opens it up. They see it and they still don't believe it. But this is actually before. Our fathers in Egypt, 
didn't understand your wonders. They didn't remember your abundant, abundant uh, hesed, your loving kindness, loyal love. But they rebelled by the Red Sea. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to totally give up. They didn't believe God was going to give them what they needed to be, what he wanted them to be. Nevertheless, he saved them. Opened up the Red Sea from the Egyptian army. For the sake of his name, not because they were so faithful to him, but because he's faithful to them and the promises he'd made way back to Abraham. That he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, dried it up. He led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of the one Pharaoh who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Excuse me, go back to Psalm 23. Yes, it's crazy. Uh, that uh, the one thing you say about the people of God is, uh, you know, we strike out a lot. Uh, I don't have the most recent statistics, and, you know, if I'd done a five-second Google search, I was busy this week, so I didn't have time to do a five-second Google search on this, but for a long time, Babe Ruth was the home run king, and he, I'm sure Ken, and I know Ron knows this number, 714 home runs, Babe Ruth hit before steroids, before the ball was juiced up and all that stuff, and... uh that's amazing. But he also, so he was the number one home run king. He also was the number one strikeout king with over 1,400 strikeouts. And then, uh, Tom, you're not gonna, I know, I think you know this. Babe Ruth was the strikeout king for a long time until an Oklahoma boy beat him. Mickey Mantle, my personal favorite baseball player of all time, was the first guy to get more strikeouts than Babe Ruth. But you don't think about Mickey Mantle striking out, Babers striking out. You think about the home runs they hit. But I tell you one thing about Scripture, as opposed to all the other Scriptures or the religions, uh, it's one thing. I mean, Hinduism, their gods, Krishna, you know, lies, cheats, lies, steals, cheats, and, and stuff. But he he has some endearing qualities and stuff like that. So the Hindus will admit their gods, lowercase g, do some uh, sketchy things. But the you know. Islam, not so much. You know, Muhammad didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, admit the fact that all of our heroes except Jesus do some bad things at time, right? Including the children of Israel that God's going to redeem from Israel. Look at verses 2 and 3. We're thinking about God provides for his children like a shepherd, a good shepherd does for sheep. Let's read 2 and 3 together. God is our good shepherd. If we have trusted in his Son for salvation makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, green pastures and guidance in paths of righteousness are parallel. It's called inverted parallelism. Quiet waters, same kind of thing as restoration of soul. Uh, green pastures here, Trey, kind of stands for nutrition, sustenance. Spiritually, I don't use that word sustenance often enough, but it's kind of fun to say. Okay, um, uh, a shepherd. It, listen, what do you? When you go to Israel with me, it's not all desert. Once you get into Galilee, a lot, a lot of it's green year round. But when you're living in Judah, where David had been a shepherd, he wasn't a shepherd in Galilee. When he was a physical shepherd, he was in Judah. There ain't a lot of green grass. It's hard. There's some green grass around certain oases, but. You know, they're few and far between. So it's a really wonderful thing when you find, uh, you know, green pastures. It's like going to Walmart and finding the thing you want. Because, I mean, it's an amazing thing. Because if you really get endeared to any of their products, I, I know I know I'm not important enough 
for this to happen. I just know I really get tied into like this this fruit that was in this small jar, like pears and and apples and what else was it? Pineapples and stuff in this small jar for like a dollar. And I bought like four of those a week for like six months, and then they went away. Okay. And then I think, and this, this follows me. All, all that stuff I really like at Walmart just goes away. I think they have somebody who follows me around and says, he likes that. Let's get rid of it. You know? So if you actually found it, it's, it's a, it's a joy. It's just a joy. So finding green pastures is a joy in Judah year round. Quiet waters is not just so you can drink, but so you can clean up and clean up your wounds. I, I'm, I'm getting so old now. I injure myself constantly. And don't remember doing it. Then I wake up the next day and I've got cuts and stuff. I think either my wife attacks me at night when I'm asleep or something else happens. But, yeah, I've got this gaping wound in my my wrist. I don't even remember cutting myself. And it must have been recently. I'm not sure what I was doing with that. But, yeah, green pastures uh, is nutrition, sustenance, quiet waters. is not just hydration but also refreshment, cleansing, uh, just cleaning you up, getting the dirt off you, cleaning up your wounds kind of thing. Restoring my soul is cleansing and refreshment. Guiding me in the path of righteousness is sustenance or direction. So you've got this parallelism where the green pastures and the guiding and the righteous paths are similar categories. Quiet waters, restoration of soul are similar. It's called inverted parallelism. You see that a lot in the Psalms because it's Hebrew meter, so it tends to repeat itself. But let's think about that first category, uh, spiritual cleansing. Uh, Blanche, look up Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, and then as she's looking for that, let me sum up a couple other things. And one, the rest of us turn to Psalm thirty-two. In John thirteen, Jesus goes around and washes the disciples' feet, and you know Peter says, "You're not going to do that. That's the slave's job." And he says, "If I don't wash your feet, man, we can't have fellowship." And Peter says, "Well, washing my feet is that important, Lord? Give me a bath." And what does Jesus say? "You don't need a bath. You just took a bath before this." Uh, Passover banquet. Uh, people who have taken the bath in public baths only need to get their feet washed. And he says, y'all are clean. And it's all y'all are clean, but not all of you. And so you won't not know who he's talking about. He's talking about Judas, the only unregenerate guy in the room at the time. Okay, now Judas leaves at 1330 in the upper room discourse. But that washing of feet is kind of what Proverbs 28, 13 is talking about. So what does that say there? Blanche. He that covereth his sins shall not Yeah, that's not talking about how you get saved necessarily, but how a Christian, a believer, processes sin in their life. And David is a great example. Psalm fifty one, but I'm thinking of thirty two, or where he talks about getting back into fellowship after the Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And look what David says as a believer who has uh, been beside quiet water and had their soul uh, restored. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's talking about in, in the believing life, his fellowship had been cut off. Whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. There's no divine discipline anymore in time. When I kept silent about my sin, when I justified it, redefined it, rationalized it, my body had physical effects, was wasting away. Doesn't mean if you've got a physical ailment, it means you're definitely out of fellowship, but that can be one of the causes. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand of discipline, whom the Lord loveth, he chastens, right? Disciplines. Was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the 
with the fever, heat of summer. But then I did Proverbs 28, 13. I acknowledged my sin to you, my iniquity. I didn't hide. I didn't rationalize it, redefine it. I said, I will confess my transgressions and you forgave. Now, the New Testament version of that is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And the we there is John, and I'm pretty sure he's a believer. So he's saying if we as Christians confess our sins, let Jesus wash our feet. So that's very important. Cleansing, refreshment is all about believers confessing, isolating, and getting back on the wagon. Spiritual nutrition. Where do we go for spiritual nutrition? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The word of God feeds us and it directs us. Okay, Blanche, you ready? Go to Proverbs 28, verse 9. This is this is hard stuff. I didn't write this. She's just going to tell you what it means, though. Go ahead and... <laughs> he that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, he is the one who just is not teachable to the Torah, to the Word of God, even his prayer is an abomination. That's serious sin, to be too sophisticated, to be in the Word, be under the Word. That's not good stuff. Uh, because that's where you get your nutrition and your sustenance. What does First Peter say? Uh, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow and respect your salvation. That's the only way you're going to get that, you know. And I'm all for Max Lucado and Brad McCoy's pulpit ministry and John MacArthur's pulpit ministry and Chuck Swindoll's pulpit ministry. And hopefully we can go through text and help you understand it better. But it's not about the teachers, about the truth of the text. And you've got to move it from your head to your heart. And I would say follow up when you listen to John MacArthur do a great message or Chuck Swindoll or Charles Stanley or James Mitchell or Brad McCoy and we shed some light to it. Uh, okay, you've been under it. Now your job while you're thinking about it is reread it. Talk about it over. This is radical. I'm going to get really radical in my old age. Talk about not the grammatical errors James might have made when he was speaking a few weeks ago or the misspellings on the PowerPoint that I might have. Rather than talking about that, talk about the key truths of the passage that were illumined for you and how you might be able to apply them better. Now, I know it's tempting for husbands to get at that table and talk about how their wives might be able to apply them better, right? And children, sometimes teenagers, Ethan, you'd never do this, but it'd be easy at lunch to tell your dad or mom how they might better apply Psalm 23, but really, your number one your number one job is you do it your, you do it better kind of thing. But uh, don't waste your time when you're under the word by not following up by being in it because that's where you get your nutrition and your sustenance. Verse four, talking about the Lord will provide for believers like a good shepherd for a sheep, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. I thought if I had enough faith, nothing bad would happen to me. Joel Olstein says, no. God's provision doesn't prohibit us going through valleys. And the Christian life is just not one mountaintop experience 24-7, right? But we fear no evil. It doesn't mean nothing evil or bad can happen to us, but no evil will happen to us outside of God's sovereign providential control. That's what that means. You look at the life of David, you know, I mean, he... He kills Goliath when the rest of the army wasn't willing to face up to the guy, saving King Saul's kingdom. And King Saul brings him into his palace, uh, kind of his court uh, uh, house, courtroom, I should say, courthouse, not courthouse. That's not the word. Into his court, his royal court. David's in his royal court, you know. 
and then he gets jealous of David and spends years trying to kill David. And David could have killed him back, but he doesn't want to do it because he's got too much virtue. And then David becomes king, but it takes like seven years for ten of the tribes to get with the program, and they resist him for a long time. God can't be in it if it takes seven whole years to make it work, can it? We think everything that God's in is instant, easy. It's not like that quite often. It involves perseverance. And then what happens after he really gets things going? His son rebels against him, tries to kill him, tries to overthrow him, forces him to have to leave. Very embarrassingly, Jerusalem. David has to trudge out of Jerusalem, go across the Jordan River to get away from his son Absalom, who wants to kill him. So David is not saying, boy, you know, if God's your your savior, uh, if you've got a saving faith in Christ, nothing evil will happen to you. Yeah, we live in a fallen world, you know. He said, what does Jesus say about that? In the world, you will not have any tribulation. He didn't say that. What did he say? You're going to have it. It's coming. So just get ready. But no evil outside of God's sovereign providential control. So it's all part of the deal. So the good news is sooner or later, we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow, including our own physical death. The death rate's 100%, despite the wonders of medical science. The good news is God comforts believers in the valley and at physical death. I love Psalm 73. We'll say more about that in a minute. Psalm 73, which is kind of the fraternal twin of Psalm 23. And that's a good thing to know too, Trey. Psalm 73, 23. Read those together. It's really cool. With your counsel, with your word, my word's a lamp, a light, you're going to guide me now and afterward receive me to glory because you're my... Yahweh, you're my, the God of my salvation. When I die, my soul goes to heaven, goes to be with you. Psalm 116, 115. Psalm, boy, slow down, Brad. Okay. I say that in speech class multiple times, but I, I didn't teach you how to do a 45 minute message. I told you how to do a five minute speech, and it's different. It's like, uh, it's like one single chicken McNugget is what we told you how to do, okay? This is a massive feast, just so you'll know. So it's, it's harder, but it's more work. But anyway, uh, yeah, um, I love this. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of God is the blank of his godly ones, is the death. I mean, you know, we see death as a bad thing, and I don't necessarily want to go to heaven this afternoon. i got plans, too. I mean, I want to play pickleball, but... Uh, it's up to God. You know, I don't, I don't presume I'll even, I'm going to try to be here, but uh, you never know. Uh, Psalm 1611, in God's presence is fullness of joy. Isn't that what we want? That's what we're designed for. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You never run out of it. Now, look at this, Zach. It says, uh, you're with me like a shepherd, even in the valley of the shadow. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod is a cudgel used to beat off attacking predators, animal and, and human, that might try to damage or steal or hurt the sheep. I think in the old country they called these a shillelagh. The shillelagh was the first golf club used outside of St. Andrews, Scotland. Mike has been there. There really is a St. Andrews, isn't there, Mike? It's not. It's real places, real people, real golf clubs. And the staff is the walking stick with a crook on it used to most of the time gently keep the sheep from killing themselves, from getting out of the way, getting out of the, uh, of the group and being killed by wolves and coyotes and varmints, or from going over cliffs and things like that. I'm sure an occasional frustrated shepherd probably was a little too enthusiastic in grabbing its neck 
and you know, you know the feeling of you have small children. But uh, those are actually two different things and that every shepherd would not leave home without. So that's the first uh, big promise, that God will provide for believers like a faithful shepherd provides for sheep. Now let's look at the second promise, verse 5. The Lord will provide for believers like a gracious banquet host. And in that ancient Near Eastern culture, that the banquet host provides everything, treats the guests like a king or queen, and if bad guys break in the house, the host gets between you and the bad guy. Because robbers would come and sometimes interrupt fancy banquets uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, people miss this change in metaphor, but he's doing a radical shifting of gears here, Carol. He's been talking about uh, God as our shepherd. Now we're talking about not a shepherd preparing a meal on a table for sheep. They don't eat on tables, you know. We're talking about a whole different metaphor. We're talking about God as a gracious banquet host. Meanwhile, as we live on earth, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This has got to be on earth because we don't have enemies in heaven. Um, you've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's interesting talking about, uh, before we leave uh, the shepherd analogy, believers uh, are never called lions in Scripture. We're called sheep. But we're under the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet that lion is called the lamb. We're sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, right? But Jesus is the little lamb of God. John the baptizing Jew in 129, in 135 of John 1, after the baptism, when Jesus comes back to where John the Baptist is doing his thing, he twice says, that's the lamb of God. That's the Passover lamb. That's the one Isaiah 53 is talking about. So I think it's pretty pretty cool. But watch this. In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherds. The sheep were sacrificial animals. Passover. In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. In the New Testament, at the pivot, the Lamb of God dies for the sheep. Is that amazing? Ain't nothing like that in the other major world religions. I've studied, I've taught I can't find it. Ain't there. Um, this is not just pie in the sky. This is present tense salvation with eternal benefits, right? Um, Proverbs fifteen fifteen says, A cheerful heart has a continual feast. We're talking about uh, being the honored guest, the guest of honor, you might even say, for this banquet that God is providing for you. This is your Christian life. You might say, well, I don't live in a fancy house. I don't have a fancy car. I don't, we don't eat filet mignon three times a, a day. No, we don't. But we live in a culture where people living well below the poverty line can be 50 pounds overweight. There's no other culture in the history of man that's like that. Uh, you know, in the, I think in the old days, in the good old days, that weren't all that good in some, some ways. I mean, you had to get up and change the channel, stuff like that. You know? uh, tongue in cheek. In the old days, I think, uh, until the last hundred years, and I can't change it, but uh, Americans worked on farms and ranches, about 80 or 90% of them, and they might have had maybe three or four or five feast days a year. Christmas, a birthday, anniversary, maybe Fourth of July. And other than that, you didn't get a lot of excess food. Today, we can, you can be below the poverty line, and there are enough all you can eat two ninety nine things and whatever five thousand calories for two ninety nine. I mean, just just go down eighty one. We got like eighteen taco stands, man, <laughs> and they're all competing. 
And you can get more calories than you need in three days for $2.99. And a lot of us do that three times a day. And we wonder why we've got heart issues or whatever like that. Now, Stan, I'm not talking about you, of course. <laughs> but uh, so you might say, big deal, a big banquet. I, I can get all the food I want, you know, two ninety nine at Taco Bueno, you know, um, which roughly translated means good taco. But uh, I think, but yeah, it's just a, you got to put it in context. So we're kind of like sheep. We're kind of like guests. And now this is the final foundational promise the lord will provide for believers consistent with his character our spiritual best not necessarily all of our wants and his highest glory both in this life and in the life to come surely you can depend on it okay ain't no doubt about it consistent with the promises of verses one through five goodness and hesed h-e-s-e-d loyal love loving kindness um that's the special Hebrew word for covenantal love, will follow, not bring up the rear, but actively pursue me. Even when you're out of fellowship, God's pursuing you. All the days of my life on earth, even though I'm going to be surrounded by enemies while God's feeding me my feast of living and loving him. And after that, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, sometimes it's hard to see the goodness and loving kindness when you have a loved one with a terminal diagnosis, or you lose your job, and maybe it's uh, uh, there's a lot of unfairness in that because somebody else gets a promotion just before you lose yours, and they're not nearly as good or faithful or uh, consistent or honest as you are, but they get, for whatever reasons, a promotion, and you get the pink slip. It's not always easy to see goodness and loving kindness in that, but Charles Stanley says, and I think this is really good, he says, most of the time, it's much easier to look back on our lives in the difficult things and from a perspective of time, see the goodness and loving kindness of God even in those dark times. It's a lot easier to do that than to live in them now or look forward to them and see the goodness and loving kindness. But I think one advantage of old age is after you get enough uh, difficult things in your life and you realize, yeah, God really did use that for a lot of Think, good things that I can see, and who knows what other ripple effects I can't see. So it becomes a little easier, I think, maybe to trust him based on life experience. But David's just telling you younger people, trust him now. Just assume that even though we're not bulletproof and, and we can get cancer and we can be mugged and we can be murdered and raped and, and fired for no good reason. I remember Andrew having some issues with certain uh, powers that be over him. It's very unfair kind of a thing, but you get a few years back from that, and God pretty much took care of the bad guys, didn't he? And at that point, we thought you were going to be the world's greatest baseball coach. We didn't know you were going to be the world's greatest swimming coach, but, uh, and I thought I was going to be a male model, not a pastor, you know, so things happen in your life. You never know, but it's all good. Uh, as I say, Psalm 23, Psalm 73 are like fraternal twins. Fraternal twins mean they're not identical, but they I got, uh, you know, the same uh, basic genetic, a lot of the same genetic kind of thing. Like Vivian and Lincoln are not, hopefully, identical. They're fraternal, right? But I, I, I love to compare what Psalm 73 is saying. And if you're not familiar with this, Psalm 73 is like Job in one chapter. And the psalmist says, hey, God is really good to his people. He's really good to Israel. But come to, because I, I heard that in synagogue. But for me, I got problems. 
And he starts talking about all the bad things that have, have happened to him. And even worse, Dennis, he says, not only do bad things happen to good people like me, he gets very self-righteous, but a lot of good things happen to really bad people. And he really goes on for like 17 verses, kind of mad that that's the status quo. And then he says, you know, when I was doing that, I knew I was wrong, but I didn't know why I was wrong until I perceived their end. Their heart, one heartbeat away from the justice of God. He says, surely the presence of God in my life now is good. Who have I in heaven but thee? Besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart will fail, but thou, O God, God, are my portion forever. With your counsel, you're going to guide me in the ups and downs, good and bad of life. Afterward, take me to heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? And you can't take a U-Haul with you, right? My flesh and my heart will fail. That's a promise nobody wants to claim, but it's going to happen. But God is the strength of my heart now and my portion forever, even after I do die physically. For behold, those who are far from you, even if they're rich and famous selling their drugs or their porn or whatever they're doing, that's illegal and immoral and they have nothing to do with God except use Jesus' name for a cuss word. All those people eventually die and go to hell. You've destroyed all those who refuse to trust in you and receive salvation. But for me, regardless of my circumstances, the nearness of God is my good. That's the basis for anything good in and around me. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That's just the decision he's now made. So rather than doubting and pouting, he's actually going to apply the promises of things like Psalm 23. And my job is not to ask questions, but to tell of your works. Right? And again, I'm not trying to promote this so much, but I, uh, Debbie and I previewed the Tim Tebow uh, lesson uh, last night. And he's he really touching these same kind of bases. And he does a really nice job. It's so good we might show that on a Wednesday night for everybody to see uh, what he's, uh, how he talked about his own football career. He thought he was going to win seven Super Bowls in NFL. Didn't happen. He basically had four different teams say, you're not good enough to play quarterback at this level. And he said, hey, God used that, right? And then he talked about the young lady who died of cancer, which was so poignant. So, you know, when you think about Psalm 23, I think you tend to end up where the psalm ends up with this statement, surely goodness and God's covenantal love, his loving kindness, his loyal love will follow me, pursue me all the days of my life, whether that's another day or another 50 years. But bottom line is I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? Where there's fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. So let's take this to heart this way. I think Psalm 23 teaches us the road to personal peace for for Julie uh, Drake or for Ken Wanzer or for uh, Meg Strange. Even the midst of painful circumstances is paved with God's promises, which means based on his character. He's, he's promising us stuff based on his character. So you're really leaning on who he is when you're leaning on his promises. And therefore, we can and should have kind of the eye of the hurricane. We're not denying the problems around us. But we're not worshiping our worries either. You know what? It's very easy to worship your worries. And that's an idol, right? Uh, you don't deny them, but you don't worship them. Uh, peace is not a naive denial of our pain or our problems. It's seeing all that stuff accurately through the proper perspective within the frame of the sovereign purposes, the eternal purposes of God. So, you know, when you think about Psalm 23, think of those three pivotal promises. God's going to provide. God's going to provide. God's going to provide like a shepherd, like a banquet host, now and forever. It's not just now. It's forever. And so watch this. 
three pivotal promises that can and should give believers peace. So Dustin Wiley, just put your name in the blank there. Uh, Psalm 23 has got three promises from God to you that can give you peace in a busy summer you're going to have. Or let me say, let me make it more personal. Three pivotal promises can and should give Debbie McCoy peace. Now you need, you know, me and Ken are going to start the uh, Retired Wives Employment Bureau <laughs> because our wives are retiring. And you know what? Uh, I, I know they're going to be tempted to kind of uh, embrace the mantle of 24-7 monitoring of their husbands. But, uh, and that's good, I think. Maybe, you know, you need to take out time for meals and sleeping and stuff. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Debbie's in a new phase of her life. And we're going to see, uh, she didn't, I can tell you, she did not have a midlife crisis. But now as a 65-year-old, good-looking lady who's got time to kill, time on her hands, if you need any babysitting, give her a call. She's got nothing else to do. Uh, I'm in trouble, aren't I? Let's go to the next slide here. Ron Miller. Ron Miller's a believer, and I've known Ron for probably 28 years, and man, he has been true blue, and he has been so faithful to this church, man. He is and very, very generous. I'm a, he and Tom, we got a lot of very generous people in this church. Danny, with their time, their talent, and their treasures. But, I mean, Ron can be generous to a fault. You have to protect him sometimes. Uh, I'm not sure how he makes a profit. He gives so much stuff away. It's unbelievable. Uh, David Yeager. We are so lucky, and I don't believe in luck, to have somebody like David Yeager as a very prominent leader in our city, our city management, city, city government. We're very, very fortunate to have somebody of that caliber. It's unbelievable. Very, very wise person. Carol Wanzer. I remember meeting Carol. She didn't remember this. But she, when I was on the board of the Christian Family Counseling Center and she was running the United Way, she came and, 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 uh, I guess we were trying to get United Way funding for Christian Family Counseling. So you kind of came and talked to our board. And I thought, that is one really smart cookie. I mean, she's very articulate, really organized, really, uh, very, very bright. I was very impressed with her. And then years later, and, and you know, it's kind of like, I remember when I first, when Olga, when you were at Horace Mann as the speech pathologist, I, I'd bump into you a couple of times. And in the back of my mind, I thought, man, she would make a great TB effort. And when I, when I first met Carol, I thought, man, she would make a great TB effort. I think she would really get what we're doing here. And, you know, it took you, what, 15 years to figure it out? It took Olga about 7 or 10, you know? But, I mean, it's all in God's timing, right? But these are promises. I think it's so, this passage is so special to most of us because it's so easy to see how we can relate this. It's easy to relate to. So these are three pivotal promises that can give us as believers peace in a perplexing world. And one more thing, and then a practical suggestion, and I'll close. Uh, because God is our shepherd, our banquet host, and he's with us now and forever, we can be what God wants us to be. If we're not getting there, it ain't God's fault. We can do what God wants us to do. I can't do what Billy Graham, I can't do what James Mitchell does. He's got a set of talents I don't have. But I may have a unique set of talents that somebody else doesn't have. I just have, I can only play the cards I've been dealt, you know? And that takes a lot of pressure off, I think. You just kind of use the talents you've got as best you can 
and trust God with it. You know, kind of bloom where you're planted kind of thing. And this, this is just saying, hey, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not be in want of anything God wants me to have to be what he wants me to be. And I'm not going to be the next Billy Graham or Chuck Swindoll. And apparently Dallas Seminary doesn't want me to be their president. I keep waiting for the phone to call. Phone to ring, it doesn't ring. You know, maybe they don't have my number. I better check. I'm sure they've been calling me, right? Um, for some reason, I thought that would be the great, greatest thing ever. But uh, I, how could I step down from this esteemed pulpit to do that? I mean, I just couldn't do it. But uh, I think uh, that is one of the takeaways. And then one final suggestion. Sometimes, you know, uh, I, I get it, you know, as James and I are called to certain situations to kind of give some godly advice or some godly input. And we're happy to do that. And because we're kind of ordained, you know, uh, staff members on a church, uh, the culture kind of puts us in a certain category. National Day of Prayer or whatever, they're going to tend to probably ask me to do something before they're going to ask you because they might know I'm a preacher or something. But the next time you don't know what to say to somebody in deep pain, rather than calling 1-800-JAMES-MITCHELL, which you might do in certain situations, or 1-888-BRAD-MCCOY, uh, simply and thoughtfully read or better memorize Psalm 23. Just say that scripture. I mean, uh, I heard somebody who should know better say, well, we can't just teach the Bible in church anymore because people, the culture doesn't re- realize it's God's word. That'd be like uh, teaching the Quran. You know, uh, they don't know the difference between the Bible and the Quran. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and his point was because people don't know the Bible, we just got to kind of start where they are and, and never really get talk up into John 3, 16 or anything. But I'm saying he made a category mistake there. There is an existential difference between the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Bible. What is it? It is the Word of God inspired, isn't it? It inherently has power. Uh, when the elephant comes, you don't explain the mechanisms of an elephant gun to them. You use the elephant gun. The elephant doesn't have to understand the elephant gun. You just use it, right? So I get it. You don't necessarily want to start with the Melchizedekian priesthood with your typical Joe six-pack. I wouldn't start there. I'd probably start with John 3.16. But I don't have to explain inspiration, preservation, illumination. I can just quote scripture. And so next time you're in a hospital uh, room and you don't know what to say, um, say whatever you're going to say. Read or recite Psalm 20, Psalm 23 and then pray and then leave and let them get some rest. They probably, <laughs> they probably need it, right? But that, that's just put that in your quiver. It's too good not to use, right? Let's have a word of prayer. I thank you, Father, for the inspiration and the inherent power of your word and especially passages like this which resonate to the very depth of our soul. And I pray that all of us, even though we're very familiar with this passage, probably most of us will reflect more uh, very concisely on it, very in a very focused way as we've opened it up today and help us to understand it and trust you more uh, with a greater depth and a more con- a greater consistency based on what you reveal about yourself in this psalm. And help us to remember this might be just what somebody who's hurting in our life needs to hear. And we can trust you to use that word and that it doesn't return void. So help us to remember this is the kind of stuff we need to be sharing, not just something we read in Reader's Digest or People Magazine, which may or may not be of interest, but this is the Word of God written. You want us to use it. Uh, I think there are some people here who really needed to hear this today, and I pray that you would encourage them and help them to rest in these promises as they uh, trudge through this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.